Welcome to Psychology and Beyond with James Brown and Sarah Walker, where we chat with academics, lecturers, tutors, postgraduate and undergraduate students about all things university life. Thank you for joining us and we hope you settle in as we bring you today's episode. Welcome to today's episode of To Psychology and Beyond, where we are delighted to welcome Associate Professor Michael Bowen, who is joining us today to talk about his experiences as an undergraduate student, his career trajectory, and what he wished he knew when he was a bright-eyed first-year undergraduate student himself. So Associate Professor Michael Bowen is a neuroscientist and psychopharmacologist at the University of Sydney's Brain and Mind Centre and School of Psychology. His research is focused on discovering and developing novel therapeutics for substance use disorders and social impairments in brain disorders. He is the co-founder and Chief Scientific Officer of Canoxis Therapeutics. Canoxis was created to commercialize KNX100, a novel molecule which Associate Professor Bowen discovered with colleagues at the University of Sydney. KNX100 has considerable potential to treat addiction and other disorders of the brain and mind. Associate Professor Michael Bowen is a recipient of numerous awards, including the Prime Minister's Prize for New Innovators, Eureka Prize for Outstanding Early Career Researcher, the New South Wales Premier's Prize for Early Career Researcher of the Year, and the International Behavioral Neuroscience Society Early Career Award. It's a pleasure to have you here. It's an honor to have you talking with us today. Thank you very much for joining us. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. To start us off, Michael, I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about the research that you do here at the University of Sydney. So the focus of my team's research here at the university is on identifying novel biological targets and potential novel compounds that might allow us to better treat disorders of the brain and mind that either lack current effective treatments or that are in desperate need of more effective treatments. And to do that, we use a range of different techniques spanning behavioural approaches, neuroscience techniques, pharmacological approaches, as well as computational approaches. Amazing. What are the sorts of conditions that would be hopefully be treated by these things that you're finding? So there are a couple of major focus areas for my team. One of them is substance use disorders. And we've recently taken a small molecule, KNX100, which was discovered here at the University of Sydney, uh, which Sarah mentioned in the introduction and is now being developed by a spin-out company, Canoxis Therapeutics. We've taken that compound from discovery here at the university into clinical trials, and that's being developed for the treatment of opioid use disorder, which is obviously a huge issue in a number of countries around the world, in particular the United States as well as Australia. And another real focus area for us is on treating a social dysfunction in psychological and neurological disorders. So when you look at disorders of the brain and mind, one of the most pervasive and debilitating aspects is this social withdrawal that people often suffer and this impairment of social motivation. So we're really interested to see if we can come up with novel drugs that target social pathways in the brain and might help people to re-engage in those social support networks and social Uh, psychosocial interventions that we know are so critical for recovery. These are really important aspects of research, but also the applications of how we take our research out and make a difference out there in the world with that. What would you say in, in terms of how much your undergraduate experience perhaps influenced your career trajectory and the successes that you have now? These are huge successes. You've had such a stellar career trajectory so far. Absolutely. Undergraduate experiences influenced where I am today. And really, it was my undergraduate journey that set me on the path that I'm on now. Unlike some people, I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do or 
probably didn't even really have a great idea at all when I I set out on my undergraduate journey. I thought uh, early on in my undergraduate degree that uh, I wanted to do clin psych, then that morphed into, well, maybe medicine with a focus on brain-based specialty like neurology or neurosurgery, psychiatry. I sat at GAMSAT in my final year, had the marks to go off and do medicine, but I had this just growing need to try my hand at research and I was becoming particularly increasingly drawn to behavioural neuroscience and to psychopharmacology, particularly this idea of, hey, can we come up with new therapeutics? Because so many of the disorders that I was really interested in treating didn't have effective treatments or had psychosocial interventions, but that could really benefit from a therapeutic that could assist people in actually engaging Mm. in those therapies and getting the most out of them. So I decided to do my honours year in psych and I conducted a research project looking at oxytocin as a potential novel therapeutic for treating alcohol use disorder. I absolutely loved it and I haven't looked back. That's amazing. I I think these trajectories are really important to talk about because so many students, I I teach a lot of first-year students, and so many of them don't yet know what they want. And there seems to be a lot of stress around them not knowing yet what they really want to do. And I think it's really empowering for them to hear that you didn't either. And that it's a process of going through learning new things and finding where those passions lie. That that is a really important part of what you end up doing as well. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. If I were to give one piece of advice to undergraduates, it's try not to be too hyper-focused on every single thing you do in undergraduate being relevant or directly relevant in a very, very specific way to a very, very specific career path. Odds are you're going to have multiple careers in your lifetime. You may not even end up doing what you think you're going to do at the moment. I'm a case in point. (laughs) And that's okay though. Be comfortable with that and make sure that you make some room in your undergraduate degree to engage in curiosity-driven learning. Uh, Give yourself opportunities to develop those skills in how to think, how to go about solving problems, how to work with other people, how to be comfortable communicating with people from different disciplines. These are skills that are going to benefit you no matter what you end up doing Mm. in your career or multiple careers down the track. And I think the beauty of a, of a psych major is that you do develop a lot of those skills that are highly transferable, whatever you end up doing. Yeah, absolutely. And I believe you did your undergraduate studies here at the university. Yeah, I did. Yes, right. correct. Um, how was your time specifically at the University of Sydney? Did you enjoy being here on campus? Um, what was it like for you over those years? Yeah, I loved it. I mean, I, I'm still here, aren't I? <laughs> <laughs> the dream. Thoroughly institutionalised. <laughs> yeah. um, I did leave for a little while. But, uh, so, no, look, I loved it. It was fantastic. I really came into my own. I was all of a sudden in this place where people not only allowed you to think outside of the box and to think in a different way, they actively encouraged you and wanted you to do that. And and I really f- I felt like I was finally able to express myself intellectually in a way that I hadn't been able to previously. Michael, you mentioned that advice that you would give to undergraduates would be to get involved and to not think too rigidly about every single thing that they're doing, but that it must have a specific focus for some kind of specific end goal. If you were to start university again today for the very first time as a first year, bright eyed, bushy tailed first year in 2023, what advice would you give to yourself knowing what you know now? 
Oh, geez. Yeah. Probably the advice I gave before about just really being, allowing yourself to be comfortable in that uncertainty and not knowing exactly where you're going to go. It's tough. I mean, up until university, the path is, is, pretty set out for people. You go to preschool, then you go to primary school, then you go to high school. And yeah, you select, you do some electives and things like that. But it's really for a lot of people the first time in their life where they have this, for some sense of overwhelming choice, but that's part of the beauty and the joy of it as well. So try and see that side of it and do, as I said, allow yourself to pursue some things that are purely based on curiosity and maybe not you can't now see the direct applicability to a career, but if you're drawn to it and you feel that sense that it's something you need to do, do carefully consider it before you, you rule it out. So, Michael, the research that you do in psychopharmacology, it can be very technically involved. There's chemistry involved, pharmacology, lab-based things that you're doing. So what are the sorts of joys and challenges that you have when doing that kind of research as opposed to the more less lab-based human-type research that we're doing in other parts of the school? Yeah, look, I mean... We have the opportunity to, in psychopharmacology, in the work that we're doing, to really bring together a range of different approaches, which I love. And some of it are those sort of more technical lab-based approaches that we use, but we also interface a lot with clinicians because we're trying to solve problems that ultimately will have applicability to the problem in the real world. And I mean, a case in point now is with KNX100, where we're, you know, early days, it was very much focused on those lab-based approaches, techniques, uh, which was great. Uh, But now it's about taking it into the clinic. So there's a whole new set of approaches that need to be taken and um, a, a whole bunch of new skill sets and experts that need to be brought into the equation. So for me, I I think it's always been about seeing that path ahead and what's the end goal here? Where are we ultimately trying to get get this to? How do we work backwards from that? And what's the approach that we need to take at a particular point in time? So I think for me, um, you know, there's there's joy, little joys along the way, absolutely, where, where, you know, you get to learn these cool new techniques and apply these amazing new techniques and work with all these incredible people who have joined the team that I lead who can do things that I can't do because it didn't even exist when I was doing my PhD. And that's amazing. And to be able to apply these techniques to what we're doing. But one thing I always say to people in the team is don't be too focused on a a specific technique and using a specific technique. It should be what's the problem that we're trying to solve and what are the best techniques and approaches for answering that question for solving that problem. That sounds like very good advice. A question that I have about psychopharmacology is something about your undergraduate experience and the things that you were interested in. Did you have an idea of, at the time in undergrad or honours, whenever it may have been, uh, what you know about psychopharmacology research in your practice now? Was that idea in your head back then or has it been an entirely new, yeah, yes, I like doing labby stuff, yes, I like doing this sort of psychopharmacology stuff, but I had no idea back then about all these other things and the external industry-related things that I would be involved in or that I would be doing. Like, was that known to you back then? This comes as a surprise. Yeah, so... I always had an inkling that if I stayed in academia, I'd be more of the kind of academic entrepreneurial mould because I I really, like publishing papers is great and it's a really important part of academia and in some areas of research that is the end goal and it's a very, very important end goal. But I feel like in my area of research where we're developing novel therapeutics, it should be a part of the process but it shouldn't be the end goal. The end goal should actually be getting new therapeutics into the clinic, onto the market where they can help people. So that was always a driving force in in my thinking and my approach. And I really went into 
my career very early on with that approach in mind. I got a patent out of my honours research that ended up being licensed to a US biotech company. So I think definitely I've had that kind of, I don't know if it's just inbuilt or whatever, but it's the approach that I've taken from a very early stage in my career. I think that approach, that entrepreneurial spirit really shows in your career trajectory and all of the awards that you've won, which is hugely impressive. As a young aspiring academic, it's awesome. It's awesome to see that that kind of trajectory is possible. So hopefully some of our first- You're making me blush. No, no, I'm, 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 so, I'm so sorry. That, that's so terrible. It's, so, but it, but it is. It's, 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 it's yeah. really awesome. It's really, yeah, yeah it's really inspiring. Yeah. On the thing you just mentioned about coming up with these novel therapeutics and getting them out there into the, the health field so that people are using them and or like they're being used for people to help them with their conditions, whatever it may be. I imagine then that involves a lot of interaction with government regulation, health bodies and this sort of thing. What has that experience been like dealing with, I guess it would be federal governments, I guess, in Australia it's dealing with. Question. Yeah. Um, what's the, I guess I should, everyone should know this acronym. Yeah. TJ, there we go. Yeah. Therapeutic Goods Administration. Yes. <laughs> yes. I guess you would deal with them a lot. And yeah, well, what, what that experience is like. Yeah. So we deal at the moment more with the US equivalent of sure. the TGA, which mm-hmm. is the FDA, the mm-hmm. Food and Drug Administration. And our interactions with them are essential. <laughs> you know, that you have to go through these regulatory approval processes for very good reason. Uh it's a challenging process, but a, a really rewarding one as well. We put in our uh, IND, which is called a, what stands for an investigation on drug application to the FDA in 2021, end of 2021. That's one of two major regulatory hurdles to getting a new drug to market. The next one is the NDA, which is a new drug application, which is basically if you get through that, your drug's on the market. The IND is what you have to get to go into clinical trials. It was literally thousands of pages. I thought writing NHMRC grants was tough slog and NIH grants. They were absolutely nothing compared to this. (laughs) And it was just a huge team effort to get that in. And it was really about summarizing years and years and years and years of work and putting all of that data to the regulatory agency and putting forward our case and our plan for moving forward. So it was a very challenging <laughs> process, but a, a really rewarding one in the end. And as I said, we're in clinical trials now, so it was a very much worthwhile process. Totally, yeah. And in addition to that, though, we also have opportunities to work with government and government agencies in other ways. So we do a lot of work with the US National Institutes of Health, in particular, the Institute on Drug Abuse and the National Institute on Alcohol and Alcohol Abuse. They've been huge supporters of our program for many years, and we work very closely with them in the development of KNX100, as well as on some earlier stage compounds that are coming through the pipeline. Awesome. Yeah. How does collaboration work in that sort of sense? There's these private research companies that are coming up with these things, but then it's like they're competing, I guess, against each other and that sort of stuff. Look, I I actually think it's a bit of a misconception that because you're commercialising a compound that collaboration goes by the wayside. Mm. I've collaborated more extensively on KNX100 than I have on anything in my career and In terms of the breadth of collaborations, it spans working with government agencies like the NIH, which I just mentioned before. We have collaborations with multiple universities across Australia and globally. We work with a range of other companies to help develop our compound. The network of collaborations really does span the globe and is so extensive. So that's actually been one of the joys of working on this compound is that opportunity to collaborate and to collaborate academically and with other academics, but also at a whole other level that you don't usually 
get to if you're working in, in a purely academic context, just because you don't have the resources and the scale required to to do that kind of work on that level, usually if you're working on a purely academic program funded through the traditional funding mechanisms. For our listeners, whether they're first years or first year students or other years in undergraduate or postgrads or seasoned professors, what would be your advice to anyone who is interested in the kind of work that you do and wanting to potentially move in this kind of direction? What would yeah, so I, th- I think if you're a first year undergrad, it's probably a bit different than if you were a postdoc or a seasoned professor. <laughs> yeah. But l- let's uh, let's say you're a first year undergrad and you think, oh, I, I think I might want to go into that, you know, my area of research. W- what can you do? Well, I think you can obviously look at the courses that are available that will allow you to get an insight into the sort of research that we do in this area and the kinds of questions that we're answering, the problems that we're tackling. But there's, in terms of practical skills that you can start developing, I think a great thing that you can do is to start developing some skills in coding. And I say that because firstly, unlike many of the other skills that you need in my area of research, you don't need a state-of-the-art laboratory facility to learn coding. You don't need extensive face-to-face training. You can get started or continue developing those skills from day one. And the second reason I suggest coding is if you do end up going into another area of research or if you don't go into research at all, it's highly likely it's going to still be really valuable and that you're not going to regret investing the time into developing some coding skills. So in terms of coding, would you be thinking about any specific types of languages, like whether you're using Python or anything like that, or if you're running statistics, you use programs like R or what kinds of programming things would you do? Excellent question. And I would suggest for my area of research, Python and R are extremely useful and they're also pretty useful in a whole heap of other areas as well. So I think you'd be pretty hard to do wrong uh, if you started learning those coding languages. Yeah. Python's more flexible, R's better for stats. Yep. Yeah, they're, they're both great. Python's yeah. a bit easier, so if you're starting out for the first time, maybe maybe kick off with that. But, uh, yeah, and it really is useful. I mean, my coding skills are absolutely rank amateur compared to some of the folks in my team who are just absolute whizzes. And if I look back now and I think, gosh, I really wish I, I got into this earlier on, but it wasn't as highly desirable as it is now. And I think it's moving towards where it's almost essential in, in a pretty wide range of areas of research yeah. now and very useful outside of research as well. Yeah. Do you, as part of your, would you have any use for machine learning and any of those kinds of more AI focused approaches? Yeah, we use machine learning all the time. So we use machine learning techniques to automate behavioral analysis using deep lab cut and a range of different machine learning techniques alongside that. We've also used machine learning approaches to identify novel compounds that might act at targets that we're interested in, as well as to better understand how compounds interact with targets we're interested in. So there's really a wide range of machine learning approaches we use and computational approaches more more broadly. And another thing to add to that is that 
even if you don't become an expert in all these other areas, you can't become an expert in all of those different mm. areas. Having some interface with those other disciplines while you're doing your undergraduate degree helps you communicate with people in those other areas down the track. And I mean, research is increasingly multidisciplinary and often the most impactful research is multi- multidisciplinary research. Mm. And particularly with my area of research, one thing, the things I love about it is that it is at the intersection of all of these different fields and often you're having to communicate on the same day, in my case, with medicinal chemists, analytical chemists, toxicologists, researchers, basic biologists, psychologists, psychopharmacologists. There's this huge range of different people and everyone speaks a slightly different language and you've got to figure out how to bring that all together. And yeah. that's increasingly what my job is now is, well, how do we bring <laughs> this huge research program together that does span all of these different disciplines and different areas of expertise? And I love it. It's fantastic. It's so stimulating and I learn so much. <laughs> yeah, the never-ending learning yep. that goes on. Yeah, yep. definitely don't finish once you get your, your PhD. No, no, no. <laughs> that's just the start. Yeah. <laughs> what are the, some challenges that maybe the field of psychopharmacology faces in Australia and or just in in the world in terms of, I don't know, regulation, things that governments could be doing. I guess funding is always a thing that more money in order to do the research, but are there other sorts of challenges and roadblocks that the field faces that if people aren't moving into psychopharmacology, but moving into policy and or government and or other things, what they might be able to do to foster these sorts of developments and things that are happening in the field? The goal for me is to get a, a drug to market that's going to help people that's in an area where I feel like the pharmaceutical industry doesn't have a lot of activity and where those people are probably going to continue on suffering without at least some hope um, if we don't jump in there and do something. That, that's my driving goal. Now, in terms of getting there, you've got to break that down into manageable steps. We've got a drug at the moment that's looking promising in clinical trials. It still has a, a long way to go. We may take it all the way ourselves you know, to market, but probably what we'll do is partner at some stage. So the idea is to get a data set that is at a level that's going to be able to attract an appropriate partner that has the scale and capability required to do those large phase three trials to get a drug to market, to distribute it, et cetera. So that's where I, how I see that playing out with that program. And then we have some other compounds at earlier stages of development that I'm really hopeful for as well that are really, really exciting. So that, that's my goal and that's where it's at at the moment and how it's broken down into smaller goals along the path. And at the moment, it's about getting through our phase one clinical program and getting into phase two clinical trials with KNX100 and getting one of the earlier stage compounds into a, what's called an IND enabling program, which is that regulatory hurdle with the FDA that I spoke about earlier, where you have to get this investigation into your drug application, you have to do a whole bunch of studies before you can even go and submit something to them for approval. So it's about finding the right compound from that earlier stage program to take into that. In terms of the current climate for research in Australia and psychopharmacological research and what governments can do, you mentioned funding and I know everyone always (laughs) mentions funding, but I think it really is core to not just psychopharmacology research, but research more broadly in Australia and getting the balance right between funding for basic research and funding for more applied research. Because ultimately, if you don't fund the start of that pipeline, you run out of things to apply and to commercialise. So it's so important that the balance of funding Mm. is right. And I feel like it's not 
there at the moment, the balance, and we need to figure out how to get it there. The other thing that is needed on the applied side is more and more investors to start investing in in research and investing in commercialising research. Australia has traditionally been very conservative. People like investing in banks, in mining companies, in flipping houses, <laughs> but that's changing and it's changing in a big way. And we have an incredible group of investors supporting us at Canoxis and we wouldn't be where we are today without those investors. And there's also increasingly large institutional investors investing in higher risk, but very potentially very impactful and very important opportunities in Australia. We recently, our investor, lead investor, Uniseed recently had Unisuper come on board and back them in a big way. There are other super funds getting into investing, um, commercialising, cutting edge research. So I think things are looking really good. They're looking promising in Australia on that front. We've got to keep making sure that what governments do is keep supporting more and more investment funds going to that and those sorts of opportunities. Totally, yeah. So one one final question for you, and this is possibly the most important question that you're going to be asked today or potentially in your entire life, but that is if you were to listen to one song for the rest of your days, what would that one song be? Oh, that is a tough one. It can be a medley. That is that is tough. <laughs> and what a horrible fate that would be. I, yeah, absolutely. Um, <laughs> gosh. Look, if I had to choose one mm-hmm. song, mm-hmm. I am a sucker for a classic, so let's go with Rolling Stones. You can't always get what you want. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Very, yeah. very appropriate. You can't always get what you want. Yeah, I've got this there. one damn song. <laughs> <laughs> Nice. That's That's awesome. Thank you so much for joining us today and talking about your research, your advice for undergrads, your undergraduate experience and the amazing things that you have coming up in the pipeline. It's really exciting to hear these various things that you have going on. Thank you so much for joining James and I on today's episode of Two Psychology and Beyond. Thanks, Michael. Thanks for having me. It's been great fun. Thank you. This podcast was created with support from the University of Sydney's Student Life Grants Program, but it was independently created and released by the individual authors without the involvement or editorial control of the University of Sydney itself. The opinions expressed in this podcast were those of the individuals and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of the University of Sydney.